Hey, welcome uh, to the well. My name is Al. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm excited to preach God's word this afternoon. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Take it, keep it, read it. Uh, it's, it's about Jesus. That's the key to unlock the entire Bible. The whole book is about Jesus. He says it is, and, and so we believe it is so. Uh, we are in our second to last week in 2 Timothy. We've been journeying through the book of, sorry, of 1 Timothy. Uh, we are going to be headed into 2 Timothy in two weeks. So we have th- this, this sermon in chapter 6. Then we're going to do another sermon in chapter 6. We're going to take a week off of Timothy's and do a, a standalone sermon in Psalm 19. And then we're going to go in, we'll jump right on in after Labor Day into uh, 2 Timothy. So that's kind of the trajectory where we're going. And so today we're in chapter 6. We're going to do half of chapter 6 and then we'll hit up the, the next next half next week. So what we've been, Paul's been writing this letter to Timothy, young pastor in a church uh, in Ephesus. Uh, it's a growing city. He's a young pastor. Uh, there's been uh, false teachers he's had to confront. There's been people in the church that have said, hey, you're too young to lead. We're not going to follow you. He's had to learn that uh, his, his reputation needs to be submitted to the will of God. And, and he needs to learn that uh, that, does, that means he can't uh, change his doctrine to appease the crowd, but he needs to, to fear God over fearing man. Uh, he's been instructed on church discipline, uh, on, on how to organize a church and how to lead a church and how to structure a church. And, and he's, he's, been, he's been being trained by the Apostle Paul in all these areas. And so we're getting close to the end of the letter, the last uh, chapter. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, the first thing we're going to see today is that uh, we're going to we're we're talk about honoring and respecting our boss. Um, now, let's read. Let us... Can let us uh, let all those who are under the yoke of bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not disrespect, uh, be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit from their good service are believers and beloved. Now, he's saying bond service. He, you notice he didn't say boss. And I'm going to get to how this applies to your work environment because he's speaking of principles. But first, but first thing he's, he's addressing an actual group of people, bond servants. These are uh, Ro- the Roman institution of bond servant or another word uh, could be uh, slave. Um, but the Greek word doulos or doulos is the, is the word that's here. It means bond servant, which generally uh, bond servants in the, Roman, uh, rule, in the Roman time ruled by the Romans uh, were generally per- permitted to... To, to work for pay, and uh, if they had enough money to save up to buy their freedom, they could do so. Uh, but oftentimes, these bond servants, they were at the lowest of the low social uh, status, socioeconomic status. They were at the, at the bottom of the food chain, so to speak, in this era. Um, but I will be clear, so that, that some of your translations may say slaves, the, this, the bond servant, it's not a fancy word. That's just the word, what the word means. It is a, it's, it is a type of slavery. An enslavement to somebody. And so we're going to talk about that. And so uh, what he is saying is that he's speaking to a group of Christian uh, slaves in the congregation that Timothy pastors. And there's probably many of them. He's, he's, Paul is talking to a specific people at a specific time. Now, let's be clear. The, the act of enslaving someone or, 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 or being a slave trader, uh, namely stealing somebody, 
in, in, in capturing them and therefore owning them and making them work and serve whatever purpose for, for your endeavor. This the Bible condemns emphatically and frequently and clearly. First Timothy 1.10, Paul has already spoken to, to this being among a grievous amount of sins slave trading or, or in slavers. Addition in Revelation 18, uh, the, later in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul will tell those bond servants um, who, are, who are bond servants, uh, if they have the opportunity for freedom, go ahead and take it. I need you to see here, this is not uh, American slavery, but it's also uh, not, uh, the Bible does not condone uh, the stealing, the, captive, the taking captive of a people. It does not. We're against slavery in all shapes and forms. Bible is clear about that. So before we keep going, we have to understand what, what he is. He is referring to those who are, um, who are who not been stolen by someone and then made a slave, but people who have likely uh, submitted themselves to an owner. It would go like this. Um, I, I, I need something. I need to borrow money. And, and you, right, your borrow money, you're supposed to pay it back. You should, uh, and and then you're indebted though to the, the to the lender, correct? So in this day, they would sign a contract saying, "I'll pay the money back by X date." This is a this is a bond servant uh, by this date, or if I don't, then hey, I'll go into your service as a servant or as a slave. If I can't pay you back, I'll work for you. This is kind of what my mom used to always tell me: if you can't pay, you got to do the dishes. It's it's a it's an ancient version uh, of this. Uh, if you can't pay, you got to work to pay. If you can't pay for, it, you got to work to pay it off. That's what it is. It's just more than dishes, more than a meal. It was just indebted life and an indebted life for a extended period of time. And so this is this Roman uh, bond servanthood uh, is what he is speaking to here. He's speaking to people that, that have a, a master, specific people who have a specific master, that they are, they are bound. But notice this, uh, Paul, while he urges uh, in, in to the Corinthians to, if they have an opportunity to get free, go ahead and do it. And while he is also very much against stealing people and owning them. Notice his concern isn't here that, that they are bondservants. His, his biggest concern is not that they are bondservants. His biggest concern is how they conduct themselves as bondservants, as Christian bondservants. He's talking to Christian people who have, uh, who have been born again and they're in a certain situation. He's talking to them where they're at. And, and the reason why... Paul isn't so emphatic about revolution at this moment and getting their freedom. It's because he cares about their, their faith, their conduct, and in their environment. It, moreover, he, he's less concerned about them being enslaved to people. He's more concerned about who they're enslaved to who's above people. Paul refers to himself frequently through the scriptures as a bondservant himself. He says to the Romans that I, Paul, the apostle, bondservant of Christ Jesus. He says, I'm a slave to Jesus. Paul is a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Additionally, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul speaks to uh, the, the uh, triumphal procession that he is like a man captured by Jesus, drugged through the city as a, as a captured man, willfully, gladly at the service of King Jesus. Paul is a bondservant himself. He has enslaved himself. He has bound himself to Jesus. He is possessed by, owned by, Jesus Christ, his Lord. 
And he's saying that no matter who you are and where you are, what your socioeconomic status is, wherever you find yourself in America or another country, if you are a Christian, you are owned by Jesus. It doesn't matter who else is your master. You are first and foremost owned by Jesus. He, he cares so little about uh, anything other than Jesus that later we're going to see that he says that he counts his whole life as rubbish, as dung. Literally, the, the, the scripture says he counts his life as, as a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus So Paul is operating from a position that if you're a Christian, you're first enslaved to Jesus. And therefore, if you find yourself in this day as a bondservant, then your first Lord, your first king is Jesus. And so how you treat a non-Christian master matters, and how you treat the Christian master matters. That's what Paul is saying. And so I want you to see here for us, for, context, for us and contextualizing this today, for you and I, because some of you may be like, well, I'm not a slave, I'm not a bond servant, even though I'm in credit card debt, you are. Uh, even though I'm not, this is a, very similar to, to what's going on here. If you've indebted yourself to a lender, then you are a bond servant to that lender. That lender just might just be an organization or an institution that doesn't rule over you, but uh, they, they may own you. Uh, so this is the reality. He, he's not condemning the bond servanthood. He's just saying that you have a master. You have a master. And so I want you to think here, uh, the principle at work here is honoring your master, respecting your boss. He says honor your master. He also says don't be disrespectful. Both of these terms imply that, that, that Christians... Those who know, love, and trust Jesus are to respect and honor those who are in authority over them, particularly here at their, their place of work. And so first he speaks to, so I want you to see this. Uh, think of, I'm going to reread it with the term boss in here. So let those who are under the yoke of, of, of bondservant regard their own bosses as worthy of honor. You do that. Do you, do you see your boss and you're like, man, he's not worthy of honor? How, how do you view him or her, whatever, whoever's your boss? He also says those who have believing masters or owners or, or bosses, or bosses, don't disrespect them. So to the, to the non-Christian boss, to the non-Christian boss, some of you have a non-Christian boss. Probably many of you have non-Christian bosses, which that's the first category in, in, in verse 1. He says, or the reality is that non-Christian boss probably has a different perspective than you on perhaps everything, but uh, they have different motives. They have different goals. They have different goals for you. They have different goals for the company. They have different goals uh, for, for everything. They have different goals for, they have different standards of morality. They have different political views and ideologies. They're just perhaps altogether totally socially and religiously different than you. You have a boss that maybe doesn't agree with the things you agree with. And perhaps, uh, even worse, they, they choose favorites. Perhaps they're harsh. Perhaps they're domineering. Perhaps they're overbearing. Maybe they're a little controlling. Maybe they treat you poorly. That may be, that is the first category. Those who are, uh, who are to regard their masters as worthy of all honor, no matter how they are treated. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. He's saying, though you may be reviled, don't revile, you, then you bless them. You, you serve them. You keep doing your job. There was a time I worked for a company uh, that, that had a, I had a boss, and he was this chain-smoking boss that would take way too many breaks. 
uh, to go outside and, and just smoke all day. And uh, he didn't like me because uh, I was a Christian, but uh, he would often throw me under the bus in front of customers and, and make me look bad, so he looked good. Um, and it was really good for, for my character. Uh, but he, he ended up stealing money from the company, later getting fired. Um, so they wouldn't let me, I now look back as a, as a young guy, man, that's why you have two people counting the money. He would always count money by himself. They wouldn't let me in there. I now see why. He's also snorting cocaine on the, in, the, in the toilet seat in the bathroom, which is gross, but that was his thing. He would come back kind of coked out crazy, treat me poorly. You know, he, this was the worst guy to work for, and he really disliked Christians, and he wanted to make sure that I worked every Sunday. And I told him I refused to, and he needed me to work there, but that was the one time where, you know, I wasn't, I needed to worship Jesus. That's where we're going. And so I'm going to church. And so I worked the evenings, worked the nights, worked all the shifts that no one wanted to work. He was just a really poor boss. Anyone have a job you, or a boss you just did not like? If your boss is in the room, don't raise your hand. Uh, you ever have a boss you're just like, man, I don't like that guy. I don't like the way he, or that lady, I don't like the way she treats me. I don't like the way she treats others. I don't, just, don't, just don't like them. And so in our day and age, if you don't like someone, you are justified to treat them poorly. Just look at social media. That's what we're told. That's, that's the world we live in. Look at the news. Like if, if someone is doing something you don't like, you should dishonor them. I'm not saying submit to evil. Well, I'm just saying honor them. Honor them. Non-Christian bosses, do you honor them? Do you respect them? You're like, man, they're not worthy of respect. If you can't find anything that's worthy of respect in any other human, then you, you yourself need to examine your own heart. Because every human is made in the image and likeness of God. They're, 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 we are, uh, the word is imago Dei, that we are, we are the image of God. We are created in God's image. So there's, some, there's, there's innate human dignity and value in every person, even if they're a boss that you hate. There's something. There's something. Man, that, that coke-snorting boss that hated me, man, he really taught me a lot about paying attention to certain details. We had a pastry case that I was really poor at organizing and unsanitary. He helped me there. I can find ways to, to what, did he, what value did he give me? How did he help me? Is there anything to respect him in? And could I say that to him? Yes. The refusal to do that is, is arrogance and pride in your own self. And Paul is telling these, these bond servants, he's saying, hey, you need to honor and respect your boss no matter his religious preferences, if he's a Christian or not. There was a man that we, we studied throughout Genesis, his name was Joseph, if you remembered him, if you remember him. He was a man who was literally sold into slavery, the evil kind, where he was taken from his homeland, taken from his family, uh, perhaps human trafficked uh, into the land of Egypt, poorly treated. He was enslaved by his family, his brothers. And then later, he was then false. He's, he got to work for a guy who, who he, he had some, some he, he was helping him. And his, his wife, that dude's wife, Potiphar, uh, said, hey, this, I, this guy's cute. I want to uh, sleep with him. Well, he's an, Joseph was a godly man. And he says, you know what? I'm not, I can't sleep with another man's wife. So he says no. So she falsely accuses him of rape. So he gets thrown into prison. So he got, he got taken from his family, enslaved. Now he's in prison with rape charges that he didn't commit. And then after that, he, while in prison, he, these two guys, one of the guys when he was leaving prison said, hey, I'm going to talk to the Pharaoh to get you out. That guy doesn't. He's in prison extra amount of time. 
He's forgotten in prison. And later, God takes him from the prison and he moves into the palace and he rules over Egypt, second in line to Pharaoh. I need you to see this the whole time. If you remember, Joseph, while he was enslaved, he did not rebel. He did not talk bad about his boss. When he was falsely accused, he, he stayed submissive to the authority over him. When he had the opportunity to move from the prison to the palace, he took it. And he exercised his authority in a way that, that didn't just bless uh, his, his boss, but in, that ended up blessing the entire world. Wherever you're at in your job, you need to understand. You may hate it, but God wants you there. He, wants to lo- he loves you, and he wants to grow you. He wants to mature you. He wants to teach you patience. He wants to teach you humility. He wants to teach you service. He wants to teach you a work ethic. He wants to grow your character. He wants you to be more like Jesus where you live, where you work, where you play. No matter what the circumstance, whatever day and age, he, he, that is what he is after. He's after your heart. See, Joseph, if he, if he did not go through that process of, 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 of being falsely accused, mistreated, learning to submit himself to the will of God, when he became in power, he might have used his power to, to, to then be vindictive back. But he forgave those who harmed him. He served those ahead of him. He blessed those below him. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. If you're in a work scenario and your job and your boss is persecuting you because you're a Christian, endure. Maybe God will give you an opportunity to share the gospel, share Jesus, share the hope you have. Now, if they're doing things illegal, I'm not saying submit yourself to illegal Rulings. If your boss is making you do things that are against the law, against the word of God, I'm not saying be submitted to that. I'm saying in a posture of humility, respect your boss, serve your God, bless those who, are, who you work for. He continues and he moves down to the, the, the Christian boss. He said those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful. You have a Christian boss, don't disrespect him. Don't disrespect him. On the ground that they are your brothers. If you have a a Christian boss and he goes to a different church, you got to still respect him. I don't like their worship. I don't like the way they do things. I don't like these. He's your boss. Respect him. He's a brother. Does he know, love, and trust Jesus? You may disagree on some things uh, and on the end times maybe. And then you're like, hey, but he loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. Respect him. He is your brother. Rather, they must serve all the better. If you've got a Christian boss, then you should serve him even better. Why? Because those who benefit from their, their good service are believers and beloved, meaning that you work for a Christian, and when you do a really good job, and he's making more money, you're blessing him. That the American in us wants to, wants to know, what's my cut? Is he making, giving me a good salary? Am I getting part of that? Paul is talking to a group of people that may or may not be, they don't have the right to, to get a salary here. He, he is talking to them from a position of where their heart is. Man, if, do you see your Christian brother, brother? Do you want him to succeed? Do you want him to succeed? Do you want him to succeed? Are you just jealous of, of your boss? He's a Christian. Well, he's a Christian. He's making more money than me. That's not fair. Uh, you know, I'm not going to work hard because, you know, I think I should get paid more. But my boss, you know, he's making so much money. He's going on vacations. I can't believe he's a Christian. 
I don't know how many Christians talk this way about their boss. I, it's so many. So many. So many. Just a level of disrespect. So it's funny because the same people who disrespect their boss later become a boss, and then they're disrespected, and they don't know how to handle it. They lose their mind. Man, you sowed seeds of disrespect. Don't be surprised when you get disrespect back later. This happens in the, like, if you're a disrespecting person, someone's going to disrespect you later. You should not work and be a, a godly man or a godly woman in your place of work to earn respect. But because you're bought by Jesus, you're bound by Jesus, you're a bondservant of Jesus. Disrespect often starts in our heart. It's begrudging. It's bitter. Then it turns into words, which is sometimes gossip. You get around those, man, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she did that. You know, I can't believe we have, we're in this work environment. It starts with our heart, moves to our words. Then it moves to our work ethic. You just mail it in at work every day. Do the bare minimum. That's disrespect, especially if you have a Christian boss. You're undermining kingdom profit. You're undermining kingdom profit. Because he is saying this, he is saying this. As you have a non-Christian boss, if they're kingdom-minded, you should work extra hard for them. Because their goods and ser- the goods and services you have go to bless him in his ministry. Or whatever he is or she is, whatever their business, whatever they're, they're doing. Maybe their business is a part of the profits go to, 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 to feeding orphans or to training up church planters or pastors. And, and you may or may not know that. And you're like, well, if I knew that, I'd work hard for him. No, that's not the case. You work hard as if you're working for the Lord and not man, period. That's Paul's urgent statement to Christians in the workplace. He continues. He's going to now talk about false teachers and fake Christians. He says this, the second half of verse two, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches different doctrine, do not agree and, and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, this man, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and are deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is the means of gain. Paul's, uh, he, he's continuing a conversation that he has been having about false teachers. And so he says, teach these things, urge these things. He's telling Timothy, everything I've said up to this point, as I'm ending the letter, I'm urging you, this letter is urgent and important. He says, there's these false teachers he says there's Christians, there's true Christians, and there, then there's non-Christians. And then those are two categories of, of people. But in the non-Christian camp, you may not know this, but there are false teachers. They're false teachers. They're not really brothers. They're not really Christians. They're, they're, they're posers. They're fake Christians. I grew up skateboarding. If, you, if anyone knows the company DC, uh, if you wore those and you weren't a skater, we called you a poser. That's just a term. We weren't being mean. Now it's a, a fashion statement. It's a style. It's what people do. That's okay. I'm not, I'm not condoning, I'm not condemning fashion, uh, but I'm speaking of when, you, when there's the function of skate shoes, you're like, I need these shoes, not for fashion, but because I need to do a kickflip. That's a skateboard term. Um, I don't skate anymore because my back, uh, so... 
It's just, I'm a poser now. I'm a poser now, so I admit it. Like, I'm a poser skateboarder. We, we can, I can be a poser skateboarder, but I don't want to be a poser Christian. Don't want to be a poser Christian. You want to be legit, the real deal. You're on Team Jesus. Not, don't be a fake or false Christian. Paul's writing to, to talk about false teachers, fake Christians. He says what they do is they edit the Bible. They edit it. They don't proclaim it. They edit it. He says that, that if anyone teaches a different doctrine, a different, they, they change it. They change the doctrine, and they, they do not agree with the, the sound words of the Scriptures, the Bible. If they change it, they're false teachers. They're, they're posers. They're fake Christians. They're, they're, they're not Christians. We, we proclaim God's Word. We don't edit it. And, and usually you can find these people. They have a lot of degrees. You know, they, they have a platform. Uh, oftentimes they'll, they'll talk about, it's funny because he says they're, they're, they, get real, they get real caught up in quarrels about words. They're like, man, the Greek says this, and you don't know this because y'all are so, you know, unwise. And the Greek says this, and no one in church history has ever made this point. But, you know, I now, being the false teacher and fake Christian that I am, uh, don't want you to know that. But, that, that, you know, this word means something that no one else has agreed upon it means. And so, you know, hell's not real. That's a false teacher. That's literally happening and has happened in our day. It's, it's these guys that, that they just make up stuff that has nothing to do with, one, the Word of God, but two, they act like they know the Word of God in a way that the congregation can't know the Word of God. There's a whole revolution called the Protestant Reformation that started out after this. And then they, they, they make you feel like you don't know anything and you must listen to them. And they deny, if, if anyone brings you a doctrine that denies um, the, the, the history of orthodoxy, then they're a heretic, period. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no new theologies. If they contradict the historic creeds, if they contradict the historic Christianity, it's not Christianity. It's really, it's starting to get really easy to to interpret these days. Like non-Christians and, or sorry, false teachers and fake Christians are starting to become really, really transparent. Uh, You can even, you know, Tell most of them in their their pro, their, their their you know social media you know profile bios like you know who the who the who the non Christians are. What they're doing is they're they're siding not with Jesus and his standards in the gospel revealed through the scriptures, but they're siding with whatever is the new thing of the day, and they get into quarrels and controversy as if uh, and he says this unhealthy controversy. Unhealthy controversy. What, what Paul is not saying is that all controversy is unhealthy. He's saying that there's this type of unhealthy controversy that Satan, the deceiver, distorts and confuses. And you see it in constant friction among the people. Evil suspicions, dissension, envy, slander. You see it in the fruit. Jesus says not only will they know you by your love for one another, but he says they'll also know you by your fruit Christians produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Non-Christians don't. False teachers don't. False teachers produce a fruit that's distorted. That's the knockoff brand. You're like, man, how do I know the difference? Well, we have the word of God. You should test everything I say and anyone ever says with the standard of God's word. This is the measuring stick. This is it. This is it. Like, well, I haven't read it. Read it. Know it. Love it. This is the standard by which every teaching should be submitted to, period. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. That's what he's telling Timothy. 
He says that there's these, these, this, these people who believe that godliness is a means of gain. This is why they, they change their theological position based off of the, the ideology of the day. Because they're all about gain. These false teachers are all about gain. If it's like, if it's going to make me rich, then I'm on that train. If it's going to, it's going to take, you know, take, help, hurt my bottom line, I've got to change my theology. You see it happening all over in America today. I don't even know sometimes people I thought were Christians are now no longer Christians because they were, they were just Christians because they thought it was cool. In the 90s, there was a lot of cool Christians. When the quarterback got saved, everyone got saved. You're like, wow, that's not, quarterback's not cool anymore. So, you know, football players don't love Jesus, I guess. I don't know. This is, this is the world we live in is that, that whatever is the cool and trending version of Christianity, that's what we're going to jump in and be a part of. We don't do that here. We are part of the historic Christianity that began when Jesus rose from the grave. We believe that this is God's word that's an infallible and it's inerrant, and we will submit to it as, the, as Jesus is supreme and king and Lord over our life, period. So we are. That's what we do. And so we're not concerned with really anything else other than Jesus and how to help people meet Jesus. That's what we're about, Jesus. Paul is warning against a Christianity, a Christianity that that you can somehow lift and gain and profit by as the the reason why you are a Christian, a reason why you are a, a, a teacher, a clergy, or a preacher. Paul is warning against any rendition of Christianity that's not Jesus or bust. That's what we believe. Paul says it to the Corinthians, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we should be pitied because we've missed the boat. But in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead, which leads us to our last point. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He says this, but godliness, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. He's saying these false teachers, they think godliness is a means to gain. You know what's gain? Jesus. That's the gain. That's the treasure. That's the, that's the good news. When you get Jesus, you get everything. Because he's worthy of, of, every, of praise and glory and honor. He is the most valuable and priceless and precious gift. He is the, the treasure in the field that one buried, hid, so they could sell everything they had to buy the field. Not so they could have the field, so they could have the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. There is, no, there is no gain other than Jesus. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Jesus is enough. He continues, he says, for we brought nothing into this world. You brought nothing in. I've seen four babies born. I caught two of them. They brought nothing. And they're only taking still. They have not given back yet. They're so young. We brought nothing into this world. And we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. This sounds like a guy who's enslaved to Jesus, who's a bondservant of Jesus, who believes that Jesus is enough. Paul in other scriptures has said that he has learned the the secret to be content. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret. Jesus being enough. He says, but those who think that Jesus is not enough, for those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Godliness is the gain. Being like Jesus is the goal. We are, as Romans 8 says, we're sanctified and then we're glorified. We're in the process right now of being made holy. Through your work, God is working on your soul. He's working on your character. He's working on your heart. He wants to to press you, to, to forge you, to make you more like Jesus. I know not everyone in here probably... I don't know if anyone in here, but some might, uh, drink wine. Good wine is not forged in great environments, but rather it's forged in hard soil, dry soil. So I've never been to a vineyard in some of these great, uh, I've read about them, and I've read about how the Bible often refers to grapes and, and, and wine and the forging of it, and, and, and ultimately it points to Jesus' blood, but it, it refers to it in these in environments that, that the wine must grow in. In order to have the best tasting wine, you must go through the, the most dry and arid and hard soils. See, the point I'm making is neither here nor there about wine. It's about wine, was not, not, wine is not created to sit on a shelf, but to be sold and enjoyed. The best wine is, is, in, is enjoyed, but it is first goes through a process of being hard-pressed, not just physically wrung out the grapes, but the soil in which it must be produced in is arid, it's dry, it's hot, it's worse than Texas as far as the soil. The, the dryness. I need you to see your work environment might feel like a desert, but it might be a vineyard. It might be the vineyard that God is, is using to cultivate in you and produce fruit, fruit of godliness, fruit of holiness, fruit of the Holy Spirit, and not so that you can sit on a shelf, but so that you can be, so people could taste and see the Lord's goodness through your life, your legacy, your ministry. That's what we're created for. And so Paul is saying here that, that, that you are to be like Jesus. That is the gain. That is the goal. He says in Philippians 3.8 that indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Is Jesus enough for you? See, enough for you. Paul is saying Jesus is more than enough. If I, if I have just Jesus, I, I have great gain. If I'm being forged and made into Jesus' likeness, that's great gain. If I get to walk like, talk like, look like Jesus, and he's forging me through different circumstances so that I can be more like Jesus, gain, godliness with contentment is great gain. And here's the reality. It's, these false teachers are not only trying to, to hijack Jesus in order to, for personal gain, but also they preach a gospel that says, a false gospel, that says if you do these things, then you can gain Jesus. You can't work your way to earn Christ's love. There's not anything you can do to merit 
salvation. It's what the word grace means. It's unmerited favor. You can't work to earn Jesus. You can't work to earn salvation. A bondservant can work to earn their way out of slavery, but you cannot work to earn salvation. Salvation is a gift that must be received. If you know, love, and trust Jesus, it's because you received the gift. You opened it. Christmas time or birthdays, whatever presents you have. When someone gives you a gift, you could take it. You could set it down and say, thank you, so-and-so, grateful for the gift. And it stays wrapped and stays on the shelf. And you don't know what it is, but it's a, you know it's a gift. I got a gift. It's a gift. What is it? I don't know. I just haven't opened it. Gifts were not meant to just declare their gifts. Gifts were meant to open. Not just open, but to enjoy. Every one of you gotten a gift from someone that, you know, they gave you the, uh, that shirt that you never wore. You never enjoyed it, but they wanted you to. The giver wanted you to enjoy that gift. Correct? You ever given a gift? You, you say, I hope no one ever uses this. I'm going to spend my hard-earned money to give them something that I hope they hate. No one does this. Jesus is the gift, and God the Father is the giver, and he didn't give us Christ, the Son, so that we could just talk about him, to just talk about how he is the way that you can be saved, talk about he is the only hope for for mankind, to just talk about him, point at him, and just go, look at Jesus, my gift. I'm going to bring it out when people come over to talk about him. It's just the the gift I'm going to walk around and show. No, he gave us the gift of salvation to enjoy fellowship and restore relationship with him. Jesus is, our, is the way to God the Father. There's no, there's no righteousness that can be, or we, there's nothing we can do to earn right standing before God. We must simply receive the gift of salvation from Jesus. Well, how did he earn that gift for you? Because see, you can't earn salvation, but Jesus did. You are not saved by your works. You are saved by Christ's work. Christ's work. Jesus Christ lived. He, He left heaven, came to earth, put on skin and bones like we all have. Lived a life in our place. Literally suffered under the rule and reign of the Romans. He was not just disrespected. By the Romans, spit on, mocked, brutally beaten, falsely accused, lied about. But his friends sold him out. His other friends ran for the hills. They don't want to be associated with him. They all canceled him. They blocked him on their social media outlets. They don't want to be associated with Jesus. He was left alone, abandoned. Why? Because of you. Because of me. Because of his great love in which he has for us that he that the father gave his only son jesus was executed and brutally beaten and murdered on behalf of sinners jesus took your sin your past sin your present sin your future sin and put it on himself and said i will take the punishment i will take the punishment for you and through faith i will give you my righteousness. Jesus takes your imperfection, you get his perfection. And you want to say that Jesus is not enough. That there's something else to gain. 
Imagine looking Jesus in the eye and saying that I was a Christian only because it was cool. And then touching the hand, the holes in his hands and the hole in his side. Jesus is the end all, the be all. There is no gain outside of Jesus. And that gift must be received. Though we are spiritually poor, he, he makes us spiritually rich. Paul's like, that's the best thing ever. And he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now, he's not saying, some of you say, well, is it wrong to be rich? No, absolutely not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when, you, when, your, mas- you can, when your master is money, your, Jesus is no longer your God and king. He says that you will not, the rich fall into temptation and they, and they fall into senseless harm and desires and plunge them into ruin and destruction. And for the root of, of or the, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It leads them into pangs and, and, and wanderings from the faith. So some of you will say, well, well how, can I be a Christian and be wealthy? Yes. Well, how? You love Jesus over everything. That's how. Jesus is enough. If you're in your mind trying to be a Christian and be rich, and, like, and you're actually, that is your, your, those are your goals, you will not be a good Christian. You will not be a Christian long term. You'll just, you'll, you'll serve money. Period. That's what he's saying. He's saying you must be content with Jesus being enough. Work your job, work hard, try to make more money, be faithful, even if you're a bondservant. Don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. Money is not evil, but the love of it, loving it more than Jesus is evil. He says you can't have two masters here. He starts off by saying, speaking to bondservants, and now he ends with a different type of slavery, a slave to money. He's, he's saying he's seen it ruin relationships. He's seen it ruin businesses. He's saying he's, he's seen it play out in the church and it's just ruined people. That they loved money more than they loved Jesus. So they use people and they use Jesus to make money. Paul is warning the church against that. Let me ask you, are you content with just Jesus? What if your financial situation never changed? What if you only got less money from here on out? What if inflation were to happen in a country and your salary didn't increase, but your, your grocery bill did? I don't know if that's happened to anybody before. But imagine, do you get bitter at God? Do you get frustrated, more frustrated with the, the president what, are you just so just frustrated with everything? Paul's like, man, we can talk about those things objectively, but only when you see Jesus is enough. I've thought through it, Paul says. I counted all his loss anyway. Jesus is so much better. A person who has that posture, oftentimes God then makes them rich. It's not an always thing. We're told that he who is faithful with little, God grants them a steward of much. So I don't know whether God's going to increase your bottom line in your business. You should work to that end, to the glory of God. But you should not be ruled by money. 
You should not be ruled by money. You should be ruled by Jesus. Is Jesus enough? And then if you're able to, to come to face to face with that reality, that's, that's the rub that where we need to be as, as Christians. Jesus is enough. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26 says, Whom am I in heaven but you? On earth there's nothing I desire but beside you. Referring to God. He says, my flesh, my heart may fail. I die. But God is his strength in my life, my portion forever. Jesus is enough. That is the refrain of the Bible for those who know, love, and trust Jesus. And Paul is trying to get it through to Timothy, to get it through to the people, to get it to us today, that Jesus is enough. I don't know if I said that enough, but he is enough. So you're like, how many times is he going to say it? Until you get it. Until you are convinced. Until you believe it. Jesus is enough. And here's the antidote to this. Here's the antidote of loving and worshiping money over Jesus. If you're making money, you should. And you should steward it well to the glory of God. And here's the antidote to not worshiping money. And that is generosity. That is generosity. God so loved the world that he gave. Literally, God owned everything. Jesus is the most prized and precious gift there is. And God the Father was not stingy with it. He gave it to be received through faith. He gave. God the Father gave. You want to be more Christ-like? Give. Be generous. And you're like, ah, I just don't want to. Yeah, because money has a grip on you. Money has a grip on you. I'm not saying you have to give everything and live in poverty. I'm just saying, search your heart. Do you have a generous spirit? Or do you have a stingy heart? The more you give, the more, Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Meaning this, the word blessed is happy. Literally the word. You are the happiest people or the most generous people. When you know, love, and trust Jesus... And he took care of your sin problem and saved you. You can trust him with your finances. No matter recession or not. You can have a heart of generosity. I'm not talking about amounts. I'm talking about the generosity that comes from the heart. That's what I'm after. Jesus is after your heart. No one is after your pocketbook. God owns it all anyway. He's after your heart. The antidote to being a slave to money is Christ-like generosity. It's being, being a steward who wants to bless, who wants to serve, who wants to construct businesses and make money so that they can do on earth as it is in heaven. They can see the kingdom expand. This mindset says that Jesus is my king, and so I will steward his money. The kingdom mindset also says that how much, ask the question of Jesus, Jesus, this is all your money. How much money should I keep? And how much money should I give back and give to fund the ministry of the church, to, to fund nonprofits, organizations? Jesus, this is your money. What do you want me to keep for myself? I asked my, my son this one time. He made, uh, I think it was $20. On something. I said, hey, I, we teach this. Hey, we teach this. Hey, this is Jesus' money. How much would you think you should keep? How much do you think you'd want to, you to give? Dude, he gave over 50%. He's like, I could take a couple bucks. 
That's good. And I'm like, what? I'm going, no, man. Hey, I know you're generous, but why don't you take 90 and give God 10? Because that's a tithe. My heart in that moment was, was I, I was just so aware of, of how money distorts reality and has a grip on even a $20 bill when my son making a decision. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It leads people away from generosity. It leads people away from kingdom. It, it, it leads people away from godliness. He says you didn't bring anything into the world. You can't take it. Steward it. Use it. Bless. I found it real interesting that this, this whole idea when teaching my children, this idea of stewardship, that they had hearts that were more generous than me. Just naturally. And, and literally, my son's like, well, just, if I use it all, I could just get more. And I'm like, yeah, because God owns it all. And you give your life away, and you have nothing, but you have Jesus, it's enough. That's what Paul's saying. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I think this is lost in our world. It's lost among the church. We just can't imagine that God might provide. Just can't, can't believe it. We can't believe it. We can't believe that his promises are actually going to be true. Someone said this. I was talking to someone. They said, well, hey, Al. So if someone, I, I was telling him that God has always promised to provide for his people. In Matthew 6, he tells, hey, look at the birds. You see them? God provides for them. Look at the birds. If God provides for them, he will provide for you. That's what Jesus tells his disciples. If God provides for them, he will provide for you. And I was like, man, I have no reason to believe that God won't provide for me, for this church, for you. If, you're, if, you, know, if you seek first his kingdom, I have no reason to believe he would not provide for you. And, the, and someone said, hey, well, Al, have you ever, uh, you don't think a, a, someone, a Christian has died of hunger? I was like, do you know one? No. I don't know one. We're speculating here that Christians are just flopping out dead of hunger because God can't fulfill his pro promise in Matthew 6. We, we are the worst critics of the, the things that are so true and have been revealed. But what if God doesn't do it? Well, he promised he would. Period. Well, do you not think other people might? I don't know. Do you know them? No one in the history, I keep asking people, have you ever met someone who died of hunger? That was a Christian that sought first his kingdom and his righteousness and God didn't provide for them? No one has given me one. And even if he did take their life, then it's gain. Paul says that to die is gain. For the Christian to give it all away, you gain Jesus. In, in, in his presence, there will be fullness of joy. At his right hand will be pleasures forevermore. And if he, so if he doesn't, you get gain. And then if the only other option is he does. The scriptures are overwhelmingly convincing that godliness, trusting in Jesus, seeking first his kingdom, generosity, benevolence, care, stewarding your resources to bless people, 
we're, the scriptures are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly convince us that God will provide more. God will sustain. So some of you are in the middle of hard times, and so you hear this, like, the love of money is the root of all evil, and you're like, man, I'm just trying to make money to provide for my family. I just need money to provide. I need you to understand that if you know, love, and trust Jesus, he is enough. Seek him and his righteousness and trust that he will provide. Wake up tomorrow, get to work, don't sit on your hands, stop disrespecting your boss, stop disrespecting the company you work for, stop disrespecting just God himself who made you able and capable for work and watch him provide. Maybe he's teaching you that you're so disrespectful at your job that he won't care to bless you in this moment because you do not see that Jesus is enough in your workplace. And he wants you to see today that the way you treat your boss is the way you treat him. I didn't plan to say any of that, but that's how we're gonna respond. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where your heart is, but I know this, that Jesus is enough. And I know so many Christians just whine and complain and just they, they, they are, they're so convinced that the troubles and circumstances of today are, have more power and authority over them than God. And today we repent of that. We repent of that. We repent of, of letting anything have dominion over us but Jesus. We repent of, of trusting in any teaching other than the teaching of the scriptures. We repent of, of, of our, our lack of generosity. We repent of our self-righteousness. We repent of our apathy. We repent of not believing that Jesus is gain, that he is enough. And if you're not a Christian, we invite you to become one. We invite you to become one. There's nothing that you can gain in this world other than Jesus that has any lasting value. You can choose to live your whole life pursuing a career, pursuing a future, pursuing a family, pursuing a legacy apart from Christ and it'll just be kindling one day for an eternal fire. How will you respond? How will you respond? Jesus has died. He was buried. He was crucified for you. For you. He loves you. Will you reject him or will you receive him? Will you glory in his goodness, power, and dominion, saying he is enough? Will you walk out of here the same person you were when you walked in? Let's pray. Jesus, Forgive us for our living these cookie-cutter Christian lives of self-reliance, self-righteousness, self-pity, poor work ethics, slaves to money, slaves to the, the opinions of others, forsaking righteousness, and calling ourselves Christians thinking that being a Christian, calling ourselves that is a means to gain, whether it be socially, maybe among our peers, maybe among our family. I ask that we would respond today with a posture of 
humility and bond servanthood, that we would bind ourselves to you, Jesus, for you are enough. May we take the yoke, your yoke upon us and follow you. May we now start to see our life, our money, our talents, our treasure, our stuff, our church, our everything as yours. And we are stewards who must be found trustworthy. May we steward what we have, the spirit of Christ, with generosity, but with a tenacity that seeks those who are far from you to draw them near to you, that seeks those who are hurting to care for them. We can't do any of that. We will not be motivated to do that. We will not be sustained in that if Jesus, you're not enough. So as we respond and as we go into a time of communion, may we eat and drink proclaiming that Jesus, you're enough. Pray all this in your name. Amen.